Welcome to 35 West. I'm Ryan Berg, a senior fellow in the Americas program at CSIS and the co-host of the 35 West podcast. Mexican, but government. are we ready? Oh, I don't reform think. trends in Argentina, right. and that's what happened. No role at all in the NAFTA negotiation. Special economic zones, or SEZs, have seen widespread adoption around the world, with around 500 operational zones in Latin America and the Caribbean. While there is significant variation in terms of how these SEZs operate, they can be potent tools for advancing development priorities in the region. This week, we are joined by Shankar Singham, CEO of the Competere Group and one of the world's leading analysts of international trade and economic competitiveness. Shankar joins me today to take a closer look at special economic zones in Central America with a specific focus on the Honduran zones for employment and economic development, or ZEDES, as they're known by their Spanish acronym. In this episode, we will break down the differences between various types of special economic zones and explore the nature of the ZEDE model, which has been the subject of intense debate in Honduras recently. Shankar, thank you for joining us today on 35 West. Thank you. It's good to be here. This is a topic that can often get muddled by quite a few technical details. And while many people hold strong opinions, both for and against the ZEDEs in particular, it's much rarer to find someone who can give a comprehensive breakdown of what ZEDES are and what they mean. So can we start the podcast by having you give us a brief overview of what a special economic zone is at the macro level and why these are such important instruments for economic growth? So in order to understand this, I think you have to put it in the wider context of efforts that countries have made to improve their uh, trade and customs arrangements in particular. And what countries have t- tended to do is to create initially free trade zones. So, so these were fairly basic zones that would have preferential tariff arrangements. Technically, the free trade zone was not uh, part of a country's customs territory, and therefore when goods went into it, they wouldn't pay the tariff as if they were going into free circulation in that country. And they could be processed in these zones, they could be, the products that are produced could be exported to other countries, they could be consumed in the country itself, and that tariff would only be paid once the goods exited the free trade zone. And, and free trade zones have been with us for, for decades. So the way to look at this is that there's a spectrum, and one, one side of the spectrum is the very basic free trade zone. And the US has many, many free trade zones. There's, in fact, a free trade zone board uh, in the US to, to supervise all of the free trade zones. And there are probably 4,000 or so of these free trade zones around the world. And as I say, these have been in, in, in operation for decades. Now, what countries have done is realise that actually, maybe if you can give more than just the tariff benefit. Maybe if you can give additional custom simplifications, additional trade facilitations. And, and then at the end, at the other end of the spectrum is a zone that has not only customs and trade facilitations, but also uh, regulatory changes. So, so in other words, changes, there's some regulatory differences between the zone and the surrounding country. And so you look at uh, some of the more advanced examples of this, where you've got, you know, at, at, a, at a very major, well-known level, you've got things like the Dubai International Financial Centre in Dubai, where the rules in financial services are actually English law. It's, it's actually English law, and not only English law, 
Also English courts, so English judges will actually rule on disputes inside the Dubai International Financial Zone. So to all intents and purposes, if you're in the DIFC, you're, you're, you're basically in the city of London, which is obviously a huge asset for Dubai. Singapore did something similar when it left the sort of Malaysian, or it was forced out of the Malaysian Federation back in the 60s. Uh, Lee Kuan Yew very famously sort of picked up English common law and said, you know, this is going to be the law of Singapore, which was quite a radical move at the time. Now we're kind of used to it, but, but it was quite a radical move then. And you've got similar things like the special laws in Hong Kong with, in, in terms of how, how Hong Kong relates to China and so on. And then there are more modern iterations and I'm thinking particularly there's a couple that, that are uh, on the sort of edge of uh, or the, the more advanced uh, special economic zones. And these would be places like Panama Pacifico, which has very specific different rules in place in the immigration space, building off Panama's competitive advantage in financial services and recognizing that the immigration rules of Panama make it difficult for workers to move around easily and financial services workers to move into, into Panama. Panama Pacifico has um, very specific different rules for uh, importation of foreign workers, for example, in that sector. And then you've got something like the Special Economic Zone at Dukum in Oman, which has all the usual customs and trade facilitations, simplifications, all the usual tax breaks and things that you expect to see in a Special Economic Zone. But additionally, there are two laws that are different in the CZAD than the rest of Oman. One is the Omanization requirement, which is normally there's a requirement that 35% of your workforce is Omani. Um, that's dropped to 10% in the zone. And the law that gives enormous protection to local distributors of foreign, foreign companies, foreign suppliers, has been essentially switched off in the zone itself, recognising that that is a big trade barrier and people have been complaining about those kinds of laws on a pretty regular basis. So again, these are two very, you know, these are pretty embedded laws in the country. It would be almost impossible, if not impossible, to change them in the country as a whole. But if you can try to do it at the zone level, then maybe you can have a demonstration model. So, so this sort of regulatory easement becomes an alternative delivery mechanism for regulatory reform and, and therefore economic growth. And this is not confined to developing countries. My final point would be that in the UK right now, there is a free port program. So free ports are just another description of, you know, you can call them free trade zones, you can call them special economic zones, free ports. Uh, Lars Carlson and I have coined the term prosperity zones because they're really much more than the old free trade zone. And in the UK, they call them free ports. There are about eight of these in England and various others in Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland. Um, but they, in addition to customs and trade facilitations, are intended to also have regulatory easements, particularly in areas like planning. So easier, smoother planning rules to make it easier for people to develop in the free ports as opposed to the rules that apply in the rest of the country. What these zones are doing is they're recognising what is the problem they're trying to solve. In the UK, there's a particular problem with planning rules. So it's trying to solve for that particular problem. In Oman, there were particular problems with respect to the requirements that made it difficult for people to invest. So they're trying to fix those. In Panama, very specifically dealing with the financial services movement of workers issue. And so a good special economic zone will look at the particular problems in the home market that you're trying to fix, um, you're trying to improve and develop solutions around those. In Honduras, there's a specific type of SEZ that goes by that Spanish acronym of ZEDE. 
What are the basic differences between ZA and other types of SEZs that you just mentioned? So what's interesting about the Honduras project is that the law came first. So there was a law that was developed in Honduras to create the regulatory space for this zone to exist. Normally, the zone is simply developed and over time in an agreement with the government or, an agree- or, or a law that's developed over time, these special regulatory easements are agreed. But in Honduras, it was um, essentially carving out the space for those regulatory easements first and then trying to attract investors, essentially saying to investors, these are the rules of the road. Uh, you're going to have a you know different customs treatment, different trade treatment, and different even regulatory treatment. So that becomes your investor proposition. And you know the, the less attractive the country is for foreign investment, the more it has to work to have a better regulatory proposition. You know the UK doesn't have to do too much to attract uh, foreign investment. It has to do a bit, but doesn't have to do too much, whereas Honduras obviously has to do quite a lot. Essentially, what you've got to do is you've got to change the mindset in the corporate boardroom when somebody's thinking about an investment, and you've got to flip the needle so that, you know, the decision point at which they say, yeah, actually, if I put something there, I'm going to be able to do A, B, and C. Yes, that that's a reason for doing it. That delta, the delta between the regulatory conditions in the zone and the regulatory conditions in the country has to be much, much larger for a developing country. And the further down you are in terms of development, the bigger that delta has to be if you're going to attract investment. So it was quite an enterprising and ambitious project of the Honduran government to try to you know, to try to do this. And uh, I think it's, you know, from what I can tell, it's beginning to bear fruit. One of the key elements of the ZA model and similar types of free trade zones, you mentioned Panama Pacifico as another, is that they go beyond business and trade promotion and create spaces for building new governance institutions within their borders. So what are the benefits of giving SEZs greater flexibility in terms of internal governance structures and regulatory systems? So those are two different things, the internal governance structure and the, and the regulatory system. You certainly want to have as pro-competitive a regulatory system as you can as you can agree with the government in order to basically show your investors that they, you know, that they have a better investor proposition. So that's certainly true. But it's interesting that we I I've one thing that I've worked a lot on in the last 30 years is metrics to measure distortions of of markets. So trade distortions, competition distortions, distortions away from property rights protection, those sorts of things. And you know, in the model that we've developed, it's quite interesting because it, it, it suggests that actually the governance structure, and perhaps this is not, not, so, not so counterintuitive, the governance structure is a big driver for economic development. And, you know, that makes sense. You know, um, the, if you don't trust your court system, if you don't trust your dispute settlement system, that is a very big disincentive for investors. But both foreign investors and also domestic investors. You know, domestic investors don't grow their their businesses if they're worried about the the framework for dispute settlement. So one of the things in in Latin America in particular, where where there isn't a huge amount of confidence in court systems, that you can do is 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 use arbitration systems, use arbitration mechanisms within the regulatory framework. So you have a regulatory framework that includes arbitration as dispute settlement over all of the regulatory issues in the zone. 
And that will move the needle on economic development considerably. Certainly trade facilitation, customs, these are important things. They, they do actually make a big difference to economic growth. And, and even some of the tax breaks do make a, a difference. But those differences are orders of magnitude from our calculations less than the differences you can derive from regulatory change. That's where the big economic value add comes in. And in fact, you know, some of our studies suggest that if all you do is the sort of conventional World Bank doing business index stuff, you know, you make it easy for people to open a business and, and that type of thing, then the gain, the economic gain over and above what you'd ordinarily be able to achieve without that is, is not massive. It's, it's a, you know, 8, 10, 12%, which is, sounds like a lot, but it's that percentage above what you would have got otherwise. Whereas the gain from a regulatory change is, as I say, orders of magnitude bigger than that. And actually, that's borne out by other data in, in analysing distortions generally, where we find that the negative impact in terms of output in an economy of a distortion is probably three to four times the size of a conventional border barrier the effect of a conventional trade border barrier like a tariff. So we have not succeeded, you know, in really doing much about internal domestic distortions in markets around the world. Um, but this is one contribution to, to that that I think could be, you know, could really move the needle in terms of economic development. Now, Shankar, you've written in the past about the uh, tendency to characterize all SEZs as business friendly, but potentially vulnerable to, to criminal activity. How does the ZDA model in Honduras address this common critique that we hear about it, and especially with respect to questions of transparency? Well, you do have to be careful, and, and customs agencies around the world have a sort of mixed relationship to uh, free trade zones and special economic zones. And there was concern, there was great concern, I think, when, when, when these zones were sort of multiplying around the world in the 80s and the 90s, that they were becoming sites for illicit you know, financial fraud, for intellectual property violation, and for even more illicit sorts of activities. And so what happened is the OECD and the World Customs Organization working to, together uh, developed a number of frameworks. Uh, you have OECD Clean Zone, you've got the SAFE framework uh, in the World Customs Organization. And then you know, private entities like the World Free Zone Organization have developed their own uh, safe zone concepts. And, and, uh, and these are assurance mechanisms, essentially, to say that you know, you, you know what's going on inside the zone and there is transparency. Actually, it is, it is much more likely that you'll be able to have more transparency, better understanding of supply chains inside these kinds of special economic zones than outside, particularly in countries which are further down the chain in terms of development who have, you know, lots of issues with transparency and problems in terms of economic development. So I think you do need to do, you do need to be proactive about this. And certainly, you know, working with either the World Free Zones Organization or, or the OECD on clean zone and, and safe zone and ensuring that you've got visibility into what's moving into the zone. The other thing I'd say with respect to the ZEDI is that your regulatory framework helps support this. So, I mean, if you're actually applying, you know, U.S. law, which, which in some respects, there's lots of U.S. aspects of U.S. law, U.S. code that is applied in the ZEDI, including things like the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act and all of those things. 
But actually, you're much more likely, A, to understand what's going on inside the zone versus what's going on inside the rest of the country. And you would be much more reassured that the incentives for illicit activity actually are not, they don't really apply in the zone. Uh, if anything, there's, there's more of an incentive for illicit activity outside of the zone because your regulatory framework is much stronger with regard to those issues inside the zone. Newly elected president of Honduras, Xiomara Castro, made the ZEDES a centerpiece of her campaign and in her inaugural address appointed what amounted to an anti-ZEDESAR in her administration. I think it's safe to say that the political climate in Honduras at this moment is certainly unfavorable to ZEDES and SEZs. However, the government also runs substantial risks if it were to eliminate ZEDES as they've promised to do on the campaign. So what are the challenges the Honduran government would face by completely eliminating ZEDES, both in terms of exposing it to litigation, but also more broadly in terms of attracting private sector investment and business in future? Essentially, what happened when the ZD law was published is you know, there's a lot of uh, you know investment, a lot of global capital, you know, suddenly turned its attention to Honduras because this was quite an advanced thing to do. Just, just as global capital at various different stages in history turned its attention to Dubai or to Singapore or to Hong Kong or to any of these other places, and because the investor in the ZE in particular is protected by legal treaty. It's protected not only by the law and the constitution, but more importantly by bilateral investment treaties. It legally, they're on very dangerous ground if they were to do anything to damage the investors, the rights of the investors' investment. More importantly than that, Obviously, any action taken to to damage the investors' rights would send a shockwave around that that global capital community that's looking at doing something like this. And they would say, well, we're really not sure about the safety of our investment in the country. And so we're more likely to invest somewhere else where they can make a better case that investment will actually be protected. So governments have to be very, very careful about this, because especially countries that are in need of investment and in need of economic development, which, you know, is much worse now. The situation is much worse now post-COVID than it was before we went into COVID even. But even before that, you know, Honduras was in desperate need of investment and economic development. What you don't want to do is send a signal to global capital that you're unsafe. And rowing back on on, on this, I think, would be such a negative sig- signal. But I would also say, I think, you know, based on the comments that I heard on the on campaign trail, I think some of these zones are, are, are not well understood by politicians and what their goals are are not well understood by politicians. And partly that's because a lot of these zones were developed without regulatory easements, frankly, without a lot of customs and trade facilitations, and they were essentially luring capital in on the basis of a tax break. So if you think about the uh, Costa Rican project where they attracted Intel into investing in uh, to build a factory essentially in Costa Rica with a 20-year income tax holiday, if all you're doing is offering a tax break, then you are, you are not going to get the, the right kind of sustainable investor. You're going to get someone who's pursuing only the tax break. That's the challenge, you know, and that's why the ZE, I think, was quite a good idea, because the tax break was almost irrelevant. Yes, you, you don't want to have very high taxes, and very high taxes are not going to attract investment. But more important than the tax rate, very, very few investors say, oh, I'm going to put my investment here solely because of a tax advantage. The tax advantage can be a bonus, 
it can be a good thing, but they will look much more at the regulatory framework and, and, and the actual structural issues around the investment. And if you can demonstrate that those will be better secured and better protected, then you will get more sustainable investment. You'll get companies that produce better jobs. You will have more jobs for your population. You'll have better jobs for your population. You'll go up the development ladder. And uh, that is, uh, you know, if, if a government's primary objective uh, is, is relief of poverty, and of course, the poorer the country, the more that is your objective, or at least the more that is your overriding objective, then I think they should welcome this sort of development because it will have that effect in a, in a way that it would be very, very difficult to do at a national level. And I think the other point I'd make about national level reform, which is very relevant to the ZE concept, is national level reform is difficult, not just because it's technically difficult and, and challenging for governments, but more importantly, because it's incredibly politically difficult, particularly in developing countries. What tends to happen is a lot of interests, powerful vested interest groups, align around what is essentially an anti-competitive regulatory arrangement. And they favour the status quo because the status quo suits them. And this is almost the, the poorer the country, the smaller the country, the more powerful these forces are relative to other forces in the country. And they will fight very hard to preserve the status quo. So quite often you find that attempts to reform are blocked by those people who tend to be the richest segment of society in those countries. So the irony is that, I, that the, the Zeddy or something like it becomes the vehicle for economic growth, for lifting the poor out of poverty, for reform in ways that the elites don't want to see. Because, you know, one thing that incumbent companies always are very good at doing is erecting the entry barriers to prevent new entrants actually entering the market. And this is what happens frequently in developing countries. And so this is an, that's why I say it's an alternative delivery mechanism for reform, because you couldn't really do it at a national level for various reasons. If you can do it here and you can demonstrate that if you do these things, if you have a good regulatory environment, if you have a pro-competitive regulatory environment, you protect property rights, you're open to trade, you have customs and trade facilitations, the economy grows, people get good jobs, people are lifted out of poverty, then you can start making a political argument against those people who say, well, we don't want to change anything because if we change anything, our interests are, are harmed. And then you might have a chance at doing national level reform. So I think it plays an important role in what the, the, the new Castro uh, regime has said they want to achieve. One of the core elements of the Biden administration's approach to tackling the so-called root causes of migration in Central America has been to leverage the private sector supporting special economic zones in the region insofar as they can provide a stable and attractive investment climate would therefore seem like it would dovetail with this goal. How should the United States view ZEDES in Honduras and SEZs more broadly, given the Biden administration's foreign policy in the region? So uh, the, the challenge for any developed country that's receiving a lot of immigrants from less developed you know, nations, and we're certainly we, we have this issue in the UK as well, there's a push-pull consideration you have to think about. So first of all, do you have policies in place or do you have something in place that's a magnet for people to come? Now, some of that mag magnetic effect is good, uh, you know, it's opportunities and better governed system, better uh, economy and so on. 
Some of it's not so good. People are coming because they want to take advantage of income support or, or government largesse or something of that nature. But there's also the push factor, which is, which is incredibly significant. It's something happening in the country of origin that's pushing people out into the US. And that's what I think the Biden administration is absolutely right to focus on the push factor and to try to do things to improve the environment in the countries who are sending their people you know, to the US. And, and, and often people are coming to developed countries in absolutely terrible conditions. I mean, they are risking life and limb. They are taking all kinds of risks to get to the countries. That tells you how desperate they are to leave the countries they're coming from. So anything that can be done to lower that level of desperation, to give hope and opportunity in the countries where they are, will obviously be a good thing. And it will it will have an effect on immigration flow. I mean, it's interesting, in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, um, when the economy was basically shut down, and after the period when you couldn't actually cross the border, what we found was that net migration from Mexico to the US reversed. Actually, it was really odd. I mean, <laughs> the net flow actually reversed. And so, you know, relative economic conditions is obviously a massive push and pull factor for, for, for these countries. So anything you can do to improve the economy of the origin country will help. You know, pe- people don't want to take those risks if they don't have to. They don't want to leave their homes, leave their families, etc if they have a choice. And I think part of this is giving them a choice. And that's what certainly would help. And it certainly would help the US's immigration issues to support these kinds of developments. It's a much more sustainable way. Uh, otherwise, you're going to get wholesale. The problem with the, the migration that occurs is it's primarily those people who can actually earn, those people who can actually have gainful employment. And it leaves behind in the countries the rest, and it sort of compounds the problem. If you look at places like uh, in Europe, if you look at um, places like Eastern Romania, for example, you know some of these villages have been absolutely decimated as uh, under free movement. Uh, all their citizens, all their doctors, all their um, professionals have essentially left. They've, they've gone to some European country and and left nothing at home, and that creates misery. It creates poverty. And ultimately, it becomes uh, a site for uh, all kinds of illicit activity. Shankar, is there something we did not cover in our conversation? Is there anything else that you would like to highlight or add? The only thing I would add is that, that you know, when the Zedi um, law was proposed, and of course, it came out of Paul Romer's Charter City Initiative and all of these things, and many of us had been looking at, you know, these alternative prosperity zones or whatever, I think some regarded this as an entirely new thing. And, and and one of the points that I've made is actually some of this stuff is very old. It's not it's not a new thing at all. If you look, and, and the example I always give people is the City of London. If you look at the City of London Charter, a lot of the regulatory arrangements in, and I don't mean London, Greater London, I mean the little square mile of the City of London where the financial services sector is, you know, a lot of the regulatory arrangements in the city of London square mile are different from the rest of the country. Uh, there are things you can do there that are different from the rest of the country. And they were referred to by the city of London charter, which is now lost in the mist of time, as the ancient rights and privileges of London, ancient rights and privileges of the city of London. And if you look at Magna Carta you, in 1215, you will see a specific provision in Magna Carta that refers to the ancient rights and privileges of the City of London. 
And even William the Conqueror in 1066, you know, had to accept the rights and privileges of the City of London. So we don't really know how far back this goes, but we know it goes for about a thousand years plus. And then, of course, we've got things like the Hanseatic League and the network of ports in the, in the Hansa in the Middle Ages that also had different rules. And actually, what we're beginning to see, and Lars Carlson, uh, I and Daniel Gottschald of Technical University of Munich, um, wrote a paper for the World Customs Journal recently talking about what you're beginning to see in the world are the development of these special economic zones, these nodes on the global supply chain with trade superhighways between them. And I think the why Honduras is doing the right thing here is the challenge for countries is not so much going to be, can I get my share of you know global capital? Can I get a piece of the action, as it were? It's if you're not on one of these nodes, or you're not closely connected to one of these nodes, or you're not on one of the, or have access to one of these global trade super super highways that are emerging, you're simply going to be irrelevant to global capital. And it's that irrelevance that could be extremely damaging for you. So countries, the challenge for countries now is you've got to make yourself relevant. And the only way to make yourself relevant to global capital is to be friendly, is to, is, is to attract it. And certainly this project, the Zeddy project in Honduras, is a major contribution, I would say, to that for the country of Honduras. And actually more widely than Hondur- the country of Honduras, it's probably for the whole of Central America, uh, it could become a, a node on a regional uh, network or even um, more, more broadly more broadly than that. So I think, uh, you know, these are things that are, you know, have been with us for some time. Uh, it's not true to say that this is an entirely new creation. It's rediscovering in some senses what, what for most of human civilization we've all lived under, which is, you know, countries are a relatively new concept. You know, the, the post-Westphalian state is a relatively new concept in all of human civilization. What occurred in most of human civilization is the city-state. And in some respects, this kind of prosperity zone is a re-emergence of that. You know, these, these, these city, these states will have more in common with each other than they will potentially with the countries that they're in. So if, if the Zeddy project takes off and you've got US rules and you've got common law systems and you've got so, these sorts of things, then you'll create a generation of people who grow up and build businesses and do things that are comfortable in that environment. And they'll go off to Singapore and they'll be comfortable in that environment because it'll be very similar to what they've seen before. They'll be comfortable in the US. They'll be comfortable in, you know, in Dubai, for instance, that, where, where, where you see similar you know, common law type systems. And they probably would be less comfortable you know, even in their own country because the regulatory environment isn't as, as solid and robust as they are used to. And that, that is not a bad thing for Honduras. That is a good thing because it will create that cross-fertilization of ideas that hopefully will change the country in positive ways. Uh, I mean, if this was uh, the creation of, a, of an enclave in a particular country where the rest of the country was forgotten about, I think it wouldn't be a very, you know, this would not be a very positive thing. Um, the whole purpose of this sort of thing is to be a demonstration model so that the rest of the country has an opportunity to embrace the same things that caused the Zede and Honduras to be successful. Shankar Singham, CEO of the Competere Group, thanks for joining us on 35 West. We appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today. Thanks very much. For you, thank you again for joining. Stay tuned for the next episode of 35 West. <laughs>